Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Globe Gazette for January 24, 2024. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. On the front page today, the headline reads, Trump, Biden, win New Hampshire primaries. November election rematch appears increasingly likely. Donald Trump won the New Hampshire primary Tuesday, tightening his grip on the Republican presidential nomination and bolstering the likelihood of a rematch later this year against President Joe Biden. The result was a setback for former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, who finished in second place after investing significant time and financial resources into winning the state. She was the last major challenger in the GOP race after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis ended his presidential bid over the weekend, allowing her to campaign as the sole alternative to Haley intensified her criticism of the former president, questioning his mental acuity and pitching herself as a unifying candidate who would usher in generational change. The appeals failed to resonate with enough voters. Trump can now boast of being the first Republican presidential candidate to win open races in Iowa and New Hampshire since both states began leading the election calendar in 1976, a striking sign of how rapidly Republicans rallied around him to make him their nominee for the third consecutive time. By posting easy wins in both early states, Trump demonstrated an ability to unite the GOP's factions. He's garnered support from the evangelical conservatives who are influential in Iowa and New Hampshire's more moderate voters, strength he hopes to replicate as the primary quickly expands to the rest of the U.S. President Joe Biden won New Hampshire's largely symbolic Democratic primary on Tuesday, prevailing in an unusual write-in effort after he refused to campaign or appear on the ballot in the state. Biden easily bested two long-shot challengers, Minnesota Republican Dean Phillips and self-help author Marianne Williamson, who were on the ballot along with a host of little-known names. His victory in a race he was not formally contesting essentially cements Biden's grasp on the Democratic nomination for a second term. The New Hampshire race will likely not count toward amassing delegates for the presidential nomination after Democrats in the state bucked a Biden-championed revamp of the primary calendar that placed South Carolina at the fore of the Democratic race for the White House. Haley was unable to capitalize on New Hampshire's more moderate political tradition. Now her path to becoming the GOP standard bearer is narrowing quickly. She won't compete in a contest that awards delegates until South Carolina's February 24 primary. As the state's former governor, she's hoping strong showing there could propel her into the March 5 Super Tuesday contest. But in a deeply conservative state, where Trump is exceedingly popular, those ambitions may be tough to realize, and a home state loss could prove politically devastating. 
Trump's position in the contest is remarkable, considering he faces 91 criminal charges related to everything from seeking to overturn the 2020 presidential election to mishandling classified documents and arranging payoffs to a porn actress. He left the White House in 2021 in the grim aftermath of an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol by his supporters who sought to stop the certification of Biden's win, and Trump was the first president to be impeached twice. But Trump turned those vulnerabilities into an advantage among GOP voters. He argued that the criminal prosecutions reflect a politicized Justice Department, though there's no evidence that officials there were pressured by Biden or anyone else in the White House to file charges. Trump nonetheless repeatedly told his supporters that he's being prosecuted on their behalf, an argument that appears to have further strengthened his bond with the GOP base. As Trump begins to pivot his attention to Biden and a general election campaign, the question is whether the former president's framing of the legal cases will persuade voters beyond the GOP base. Trump lost the popular vote in the 2016 and 2020 elections and has faced particular struggles in suburban communities from Georgia to Pennsylvania to Arizona that could prove decisive in the fall campaign. Beyond the political vulnerabilities associated with the criminal cases, Trump faces a logistical challenge in balancing trials and campaigning. He has frequently appeared voluntarily at a New York courtroom where a jury is considering whether he should pay additional damages to a columnist who last year won a $5 million jury verdict against Trump for sex abuse and defamation. He has turned these appearances into campaign events, holding televised news conferences that give him an opportunity to spread his message to a large audience. He has no choice but to appear in court when the criminal cases begin, which could happen later this spring. Biden faces his own challenges, though of a different magnitude. There are widespread concerns about his age at 81 years old. Dissent is also building within his party over Biden's alliance with Israel in its war against Hamas, putting the president's standing at risk in swing states like Michigan. Biden championed new Democratic National Committee rules that have its 2024 primary beginning on February 3 in South Carolina, rather than in Iowa or New Hampshire. That left him in something of an awkward position at the outset of the nomination process. Also on the front page, an article entitled Israel Encircles Large Gaza City After 21 Troops Killed. Palestinian militants carried out the deadliest single attack on Israeli forces in Gaza since the Hamas raid that triggered the war, killing 21 soldiers, the military said Tuesday, a significant setback that could add to mounting calls for a ceasefire. Hours later, the military announced that ground forces encircled the southern city of Khan Unis, Gaza's second largest, and thick black smoke could be seen rising over the city 
as thousands of Palestinians fled south. Witnesses said Israeli, Israeli tanks and troops also moved into Muwasi, a nearby coastal area that the military previously declared a safe zone for Palestinians. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu mourned the Israeli soldiers who died when the blast from a rocket-propelled grenade triggered explosives they were laying to blow up buildings. He vowed to press ahead toward absolute victory, including crushing Hamas and freeing more than 100 Israeli hostages still held by militants. Israelis are increasingly questioning whether it's possible to achieve those war aims. In the wake of Hamas' October 7 attack, outraged Israelis set aside long-simmering political differences and rallied behind the war. More than 100 days later, divisions are re-emerging and anger is growing over Netanyahu's conduct of the war. Families of the hostages have called for Israel to reach a deal with Hamas, saying time is running out to bring their relatives home alive. A senior Egyptian official said Israel has proposed a two-month ceasefire in which the hostages would be freed in exchange for the release of Palestinians imprisoned by Israel and top Hamas leaders in Gaza would be allowed to relocate to other countries. The official, who spoke on condition of anonymity, said Hamas rejected the proposal and insists no more hostages will be released until Israel ends its offensive and withdraws from Gaza. Israel's government declined to comment on the talks. Egypt and Qatar, which have brokered past agreements between Israel and Hamas, were developing a multi-stage proposal to try to bridge the gaps, the official said. Israeli reservists were preparing explosives on Monday to demolish two buildings outside central Gaza's Magazi refugee camp near the Israeli border when a militant fired a rocket-propelled grenade at a tank nearby. The blast triggered the explosives, collapsing both two-story buildings onto the soldiers. Throughout the war, Israeli troops have used controlled detonations to destroy structures that the military claims hide Hamas tunnels or have been used by militants as firing positions, one reason for the massive destruction wreaked by the ground offensive. Blasts have destroyed entire city blocks, apartment complexes, government buildings, and universities, fueling Palestinians' fears that the territory will be left unlivable. At least 217 soldiers have been killed since the ground offensive began in late October, including three killed in a separate event on Monday, according to the military. Netanyahu acknowledged on social media that it was one of the hardest days of the war, but vowed to keep up the offensive. We are in the middle of a war that is more than justified. In this war, we are making big achievements, like the encircling of Kanunis, and there are also very heavy losses, he later said in a video statement. Israel launched its offensive after Hamas crossed the border October 7, 
The fighting killed more than 1,200 people, and militants abducted some 250 others. The offensive has caused widespread death and destruction, killing at least 25,490 people, the majority women and children, and wounding another 63,354, according to Gaza's health ministry. Its count does not differentiate between civilians and combatants. An estimated 85% of Gaza's 2.3 million people have been driven from their homes in a humanitarian crisis that has left one quarter of the population facing starvation. With fighting raging in neighboring Khan-Yunis city, witnesses said in the past few days Israeli troops and tanks entered parts of Muwasi. Previously, the military told Palestinians to take refuge in the tiny rural area on the Mediterranean coast, saying it would be spared military operations. On Monday, troops stormed Al-Qair Hospital inside the zone and struck the nearby Al-Aqsa University, where displaced people were sheltering, according to health officials. The advance sent families who fled the area from fighting elsewhere fleeing once more, said one witness. Asil al-Makayed, one main street, had been very crowded with displaced people. You could hardly find a place without a tent. Now the area is almost empty, she said, adding that she had seen tanks now stationed nearby. Inside Khan Unis, heavy fighting raged around the two main hospitals. Shelling hit the fourth floor of Al-Amal Hospital, where a shell hit the fourth floor, killing one person and wounding ten others. According to Rayad Al-Nims, a spokesperson for the Palestinian Red Crescent Rescue Service, which runs the facility. Shelling on Monday also hit a UN school in the city, sheltering displaced people, killing at least six people, according to the UN agency for Palestinian refugees. In other news, we have an article entitled Ruby Slipper Thief Wanted, quote, One Last Score. The aging reformed mobster who admitted stealing a pair of ruby slippers that Judy Garland wore in The Wizard of Oz gave in to the temptation of, quote, one last score, close quote, after an old mob associate led him to believe the famous shoes must be adorned with real jewels to justify their $1 million insured value. Terry John Martin's defense attorney finally revealed the 76-year-old's motive for the 2005 theft from the Judy Garland Museum in the late actor's hometown of Grand Rapids, Minnesota. In a new memo filed ahead of his January 29 sentencing, in Duluth, Minnesota. The FBI recovered the shoes in 2018 when someone else tried to claim an insurance reward on them, but Martin wasn't charged with stealing them until last year. Martin pleaded guilty in October to using a hammer to smash the glass of the museum door and display case to take the slippers. He had hoped to harvest real rubies from the shoes and sell them, But a fence, a person who deals in stolen goods, informed him the rubies were glass and Martin got rid of the slippers less than two days after he took them, he said. 
Defense attorney Dane DeCry said in his memo that an unidentified former mob associate tempted Martin to steal the shoes, even though he hadn't committed a crime in nearly 10 years after his last prison stint. At first, Terry declined the invitation to participate in the heist, but old habits die hard, and the thought of a, quote, final score kept him up at night, DeCry wrote. After much contemplation, Terry had a criminal relapse and decided to participate in the theft. DeCry said prosecutors are recommending the judge sentence Martin to time served because he is physically incapable of presenting a threat to society. Martin is in hospice care with a life expectancy of less than six months. He needs oxygen at all times because of his chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder and was in a wheelchair at his most recent court appearance. Even if he were sentenced to prison, his poor health might be grounds for a compassionate release. Martin had no idea about the cultural significance of the ruby slippers and had never seen the movie. Instead, DeCry said he was just looking for one last big score and the old Terry with a lifelong history of crimes like burglary and receiving stolen property beat out the new Terry who seemed to finally put his demons to rest after being released from prison in 1996 and became a contributing member of society. DeCry urged the judge to consider the major events of Martin's life when deciding whether a lenient sentence is appropriate. Martin suffered under a cruel stepmother who mistreated him and his three brothers so badly for several years that he left home at the age of 16 and began drinking and stealing. While on parole from prison, Martin's girlfriend became pregnant with twins, but he missed their birth after his parole was revoked. Right after his girlfriend brought the one-month-old twins to prison to meet him, they died after a train struck her vehicle. This was the truly turning point in Terry's life, his villain origin story, and the reason he not only went down his dark path, but accelerated towards it, DeCry wrote. His son said at best, the twins' death made my dad just give up on life. He decided on a life of crime. Martin's lawyer also said the judge should consider that Martin had not committed any other crimes in nearly a decade before stealing the slippers, nor in the years since then. DeCry said Martin didn't even try to claim a slice of the insurance reward money when some of his former associates tried to collect. And now in national and world news, an article entitled Suspect Shoots, Kills Self. A man suspected of shooting and killing eight people in suburban Chicago this weekend was related to most of the victims, authorities said Tuesday, a day after the 23-year-old killed himself during a confrontation with law enforcement in Texas. The Illinois authorities provided a clearer timeline of the shootings on Tuesday, saying they believe all eight people killed and a ninth person wounded were shot Sunday and Romeo Nance fled the area by that evening. They told reporters there is no evidence of a motive yet for the killings. We can't get inside his head, Joliet Police Chief Bill Evans told reporters 
We just don't have any clue as to why he did what he did. Investigators believe Nance first shot seven people at two relatives' homes in the city of Joliet on Sunday, then fired randomly at two men, one outside an apartment building and another on a residential street, Joliet and Will County officials said on Tuesday. The Will County coroner on Tuesday identified the victims found at the Joliet homes. 38-year-old Christine Esters, 47-year-old Tamika Nance, 35-year-old William Esters II, 31-year-old Joshua Nance, and 20-year-old Alexandria Nance. The names of two teenage girls, 14 and 16, were not released. Authorities identified the man killed outside the apartment building as Toyosi Bakar, 28, a man originally from Nigeria who lived in the U.S. for about three years. Nance fatally shot himself Monday evening after U.S. Marshals located him near Natalia, Texas, about 30 miles southwest of San Antonio and more than 1,000 miles from Joliet, authorities said. He had no known ties to Texas, Illinois authorities said on Tuesday. Medina County, Texas Sheriff Randy Brown said his office received a call Monday about a person suspected in the Chicago area killings heading into the county on Interstate 35. Brown said he believes the suspect was trying to reach Mexico. It seems like criminal suspects all head to Mexico which is about 120 miles south of Natalia, along Interstate 35, Brown said on Tuesday. Officers from multiple agencies confronted Nance, Brown said. The Texas Rangers are investigating Nance's death and believe he shot himself, said Lieutenant Jason Rays, a spokesperson for the Texas Department of Public Safety, of which the Rangers are a part. Ray said he could not provide other information about the circumstances of Nance's death or his confrontation with law enforcement officers, saying his agency was only brought in to investigate after the fact. And now a story related to the war in Ukraine. The article is entitled Pentagon Out of Support Funds. Moscow launches more than 40 missiles, killing at least seven. The United States is out of money for Ukraine, unable to send the ammunition and missiles that the government in Kyiv says it needs to fend off Russia's invasion. With the aid caught up in domestic politics, the Biden administration on Tuesday came empty-handed for the first time as host of the monthly meeting of about 50 nations that coordinate support for Ukraine. The group was established by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin in April 2022. While waiting for Congress to approve more money for Ukraine's fight, Washington will look to allies to keep bridging the gap. I urge this group to dig deep to provide Ukraine with more life-saving ground-based air defense systems and interceptors, Austin said in opening remarks broadcast from his home where he is recuperating from prostate cancer surgery. The opening statement by video was the first public appearance from Austin, 70, who appeared slightly gaunt. 
he was hospitalized for two weeks after complications from the surgery. After the meeting, Celeste Wallander, Assistant Defense Secretary for International Affairs, told reporters that Ukraine's Ministry of Defense is getting reports from its front lines that units do not have the stocks and the stores of ammunition that they require. Meanwhile, Russian missiles struck three Ukrainian cities Tuesday, including its two biggest, killing at least seven people and wrecking apartment buildings after Moscow shunned any deal backed by Kyiv and its Western allies to end the war. The barrage included more than 40 ballistic, crews, anti-aircraft, and guided missiles, officials reported, in what the United Nations said appeared to be the heaviest bombardment since early January, when hundreds of Ukrainian civilians were killed. Ukraine's Air Force, whose defenses include Western-supplied systems, said it intercepted 21 of the missiles. The attacks keep Ukrainians on edge, while the 930-mile front line has barely budged. Both sides' inability to deliver major gains on the battlefield has pushed the fighting toward trench and artillery warfare. Analysts say Russia stockpiled missiles at the end of last year to press a winter campaign of aerial bombardment. And now an article entitled Union Membership Rate Remains at All-Time Low. Organized labor made gains last year in auto hospitality industries. Unions commanded big headlines last year, but that didn't translate into higher membership rates, according to government data released on Tuesday. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics said 10% of hourly and salaried workers were members of unions in 2023, about 14.4 million people. That is an all-time low, down from 10.1% of workers in 2022. The number of unionized workers in the private sector increased by 191,000 to 7.4 million last year. That includes workers at auto companies, Las Vegas hotels, and Hollywood studios, all of whom went through high-profile contract negotiations in 2023. But the percentage of unionized workers in the private sector, 6%, remained unchanged from the previous year as unionization rates didn't keep pace with overall hiring. The National Labor Relations Board reported 2,594 filings for union representation in its 2023 fiscal year, which ended September 30. That was up 3% from 2022 and the highest number of filings since the 2015 fiscal year. But unionizing a workplace in the U.S. can be a long and arduous process if the employer does not support the union. And next, we have an article entitled Sweden, One Step Closer to NATO Membership. Turkish Parliament Approves Application, Hungary Remains. The Turkish legislators endorsed Sweden's membership in NATO on Tuesday, lifting a major hurdle on the previously non-aligned country's entry into the military alliance. 
lawmakers ratified Sweden's accession protocol 287-55, to with ruling party members saying the Nordic country's tougher stance on Kurdish militants was key to winning approval. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, Erdogan while also previously linked the ratification to Turkey's desire to buy fighter jets from the U.S. Hungary is the only remaining NATO ally not to have ratified Sweden's accession. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban said Tuesday he sent a letter to his Swedish counterpart, Ulf Kristersson, inviting him to Budapest to discuss Sweden's entry into NATO. And that does it for today's reading of the Globe Gazette for January 24, 2024. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Messenger for January 24, 2024. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. On the front page, we have an article entitled, We Are Blank, just a blank line. Fort Dodge Senior High Diversity Action Troop writes poems with Butler students. The fourth graders in Timmy Denklau's class at Butler Elementary School are special. They wonder about next year. They hear their teacher. They see hand-working people. They want world peace and friendships, and they are all unique. On Tuesday... Members of the Diversity Action Troop from the Performers Club at Fort Dodge Senior High School visited the classrooms at Butler to teach the students how the things that make them different are what make them unique, and that they have more similarities with each other than they do differences. In the afternoon, FDSH, Senior Josie Novacino, and sophomore Simeon Roberts went into the fourth grade classrooms at Butler and facilitated a group activity. After dividing the class into smaller groups, Novencito and Roberts asked the groups to each write an I Am poem. An I Am poem is a series of sentences in which the author, or in this case authors, describe themselves. The lines all start with things like we are, or we wonder, or we hear, or we want, or any other combination of prompts. It's to make people see their uniqueness and what makes everybody different, but also to show them what brings them together, Nomancito said. After the groups finished writing their poems, they presented them to the rest of the class. While each poem as a whole was unique, just like each student in the classroom is unique, some themes were echoed from group to group. I think they had a lot of fun, and it got them thinking about what brings them together and their similarities and that they have with each other, Novencito said. Also on the front page, article entitled, Bill Would Bring Biofuels to the Skies. Grassley, Ernst, Feenstra are supporters. Ethanol has been a widely accepted fuel for cars for decades. More recently, biodiesel became a fuel option for big trucks. 
Now, federal lawmakers from Iowa are joining a bipartisan push to bring biofuels to the skies. Republican Senators Charles Grassley and Joni Ernst are co-sponsoring a measure to expand the use of sustainable aviation fuel. U.S. Representative Randy Feenstra, a Republican from Hall, is co-sponsoring the House version of the bill. An investment in the development of sustainable aviation fuel is an investment in our national security, our environment, and our farmers, Ernst said in a written statement. Grassley noted that embracing biofuels is a positive development for Iowa farmers and the environment. By expanding opportunities for investments in sustainable aviation fuels at the USDA, the bill aims to diversify and onshore American energy production while encouraging economic activity, Grassley said. With this bill, the lawmakers dig into various federal rules and regulations with the goal of making it easier to produce sustainable aviation fuel in the United States. The bill is called the Farm to Fly Act. It would do these things. Clarify eligibility for sustainable aviation fuel in United States Department of Agriculture programs. Provide for greater collaboration and private sector partnerships for sustainable aviation fuel. Provide a common definition of sustainable aviation fuel to enable U.S. crops to most effectively contribute to those fuels. The Senate bill is co-sponsored by Senators Tammy Duckworth, a Democrat from Illinois, Jerry Moran, a Republican from Kansas, and Amy Klobuchar, a Democrat from Minnesota. The House bill is sponsored by Representative Max Miller, a Republican from Ohio. Feenstra is making is among seven co-sponsors. The bills await action by congressional committees. Also on the front page, an article entitled, entitled Auditor, Low-Income Areas Pay More in Property Taxes. Iowans and private entities in lower-income areas pay more in property taxes than those in wealthier areas, a report issued by Iowa Auditor of State Rob Sand found in a news conference on Tuesday. Sand said the report was the first review of Iowa's property tax rates across the state in comparison to local income. The review documented the overall levies for every tax district, consolidated rates based on the levies of municipal, county, school district, and other taxing entities, and compared those with the median household income in each district based on U.S. Census Bureau data. The office found a correlation between higher income and lower property tax rates in Iowa. According to the report, every $1,000 increase in an area's median household income is associated with a 10.6 cent decline in overall property tax rate. Sand says this shows that Iowa's property tax system is a regressive tax, an assertion he said was long expected but had not been confirmed before the report. The fact that lower and middle income Iowans pay a higher percentage of value 
higher percent of value into property taxes <clears throat> than wealthy Iowans is important to keep in mind while looking at further property tax changes, he said. Obviously, property taxes are something that the legislature is looking at on a regular basis, Sand said. They're changing the formula, changing the rules around them, and yet no one has actually addressed this question. No one has actually answered this question before, which I think is an important one. Sand said his office is not making policy recommendations based on this report. He also said the impact of the $100 million property tax cut signed into law in 2023 remains unclear. The law included levy rate caps for cities and counties, as well as property tax exemptions for veterans and seniors. Sand says 2023 law has created roadblocks. While he said he hopes the report will inform lawmakers' policy proposals on property taxes, Sand says he has not held meetings with legislators on the topic. He said the resistance legislative leaders showed toward meeting with his office as a law restricting the auditor's access to information and subpoena power advanced during last year's session indicated there may be better uses of our time for his office. Sand is the sole Democrat to hold a statewide elected office following the 2022 midterm election. Republicans also control both chambers of the legislature, holding a supermajority in the Iowa Senate. Though Republicans supporting the 2023 measure said it addresses legitimate public policy concerns, members of the minority party said the restrictions to the auditor's office were politically motivated. The state auditor said while he cannot share specific details about how the new law has impacted his office, he said there have been roadblocks in getting information during some audits. Details on those issues will be released with the report of the audit, he said. And finally, on the front page, an article entitled USDA Awards $330,000 in Grants to two Webster County Ag Operations. Iowa Ag Producers and Small Businesses are receiving $18 million from the United States Department of Agriculture to invest in clean energy products projects, according to a USDA release. The announcement came Monday with a list of 183 projects across the state that will receive funding through the Rural Energy for America program. Locally, two Webster County farming operations will be receiving grants to fund clean energy products projects. The Rural Energy for America program is known as the known by the acronym REAP, R-E-A-P. Michael Kaufman, a farmer near Harcourt, will be receiving a grant of sixty thousand dollars to install an eighty-one kilowatt solar array on his grain production farm operation. The array will generate and replace 102,185 kilowatt hours per year in energy and create $15,980 in annual savings from energy expenses, according to the USDA's release. Near Duncombe, AJM Farms will receive a 
$269,282 grant to install a grain drying system, saving $33,500 per year and 486,200 kilowatt hours per year in energy usage, which is enough electricity to power 44 homes. The REAP grant funding comes from the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. Nationwide, the USDA awarded $207,184,933 to 682 projects on Monday. The producers and small businesses across the state are saving money, growing their businesses, and addressing climate change by investing in solar projects and making energy efficiency improvements through the USDA Rural Energy for America program, said USDA Iowa State Director Teresa Greenfield. The Biden-Harris administration is hard at work making sure as many Iowans as possible can access the historic Inflation Reduction Act funding to make clean energy improvements at their farms and businesses. The USDA is continuing to accept REAP applications and will hold funding competitions quarterly through September 30. Other area grant awards include $50,232 to Douglas L. Phelps of Tetonka, $249,000 to Kenna Motor Company of Algona, $66,340 to Dumbbuyer Inc. of Wesley, $165,414 to MHF LLC of Emmitsburg, $48,594 to Daniel Dre of Schaller, $33,040 to Kennedy Donald Dre of Early, $88,936 to Western Iowa Energy of Wall Lake, $113,711 to Curtis Dorenkamp of Belmond, and $64,779 to Woodley Farm LLC of Clarion. On page two, we find an article entitled Trump Wins New Hampshire Primary as rematch with Biden appears increasingly likely. Former President Donald Trump easily won New Hampshire's primary on Tuesday, seizing command of the race for the Republican nomination and making a November rematch against President Joe Biden feel all the more inevitable. The result was a setback for former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, who finished second despite investing significant time and financial resources in a state famous for its independent streak. She's the last major challenger after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis ended his presidential bid over the weekend, allowing her to campaign as the sole alternative to Trump. Trump's allies ramped up pressure on Haley to leave the race before the polls had closed, but Haley vowed after the results were announced to continue her campaign. Speaking to supporters, she intensified her criticisms of the former president, questioning his mental acuity and pitching herself as a unifying candidate who would usher in generational change. This race is far from over. 
There, there are dozens of states left to go, Haley said, while some in the crowd cried, it's not over. Trump, meanwhile, can now boast of being the first Republican presidential candidate to win open races in Iowa and New Hampshire since both states began leading the election calendar in 1976, a striking sign of how rapidly Republicans have rallied around him to make him their nominee for the third consecutive time. He posted especially strong results in the state's most conservative areas, while Haley won more liberal parts. The only areas in which Haley was leading Trump in early returns were in Democratic-leaning cities and towns such as Concord, Keene, and Portsmouth. With easy wins in both early states, Trump is demonstrating an ability to unite the GOP's factions firmly behind him. But about half of GOP primary voters in New Hampshire said they are very or somewhat concerned that Trump is too extreme to win the general election, according to AP VoteCast, a survey of the state's electorate. Only about one-third say the same about Haley. Pat Sheridan, a 63-year-old engineer from Hampton, voted for Trump because he did a really good job for the first time. We need a businessman, not bureaucrats, Sheridan said. Haley's path to becoming the GOP standard bearer is narrowing quickly. She won't compete in a contest that rewards delegates until South Carolina's February 24 primary, bypassing the February 8 Nevada caucuses that are widely seen as favoring Trump. As South Carolina's former governor, Haley is hoping, hoping a strong showing there could propel her into the March 5 Super Tuesday contest. But in a deeply conservative state where Trump is exceedingly popular, those ambitions may be tough to realize and a home state loss could prove politically devastating. And now an article from the Iowa legislature entitled Bill Allowing Cameras in Nursing Homes Advances with No Industry Opposition. Lobbyists said they tried to kill the bill in 2024, but now say they're neutral. Eight months ago, nursing home lobbyists said they'd work this year to kill legislation allowing cameras in nursing homes, but on Tuesday, they said they were neutral on the idea. The bill in question, House File 537, would prevent nursing homes from prohibiting the use of so-called granny cams that provide families with a video feed of activity inside a resident's room. For residents who reside in a shared room, the roommate would have to agree to the use of the camera and a notice posted to the door would alert visitors and staff to the presence of the camera. For the past several years, the bill has faced stiff opposition from the nursing home industry and hasn't advanced. On Tuesday, however, the three-member House Health and Human Services Appropriations Subcommittee unanimously agreed to forward the bill for consideration by the full committee. At Tuesday's meeting, Brent Willett, the head of the Iowa Healthcare Association, which lobbies lawmakers on behalf of nursing homes, told representatives that IHCA took no position on the bill in 2023 
and that it remains neutral on the bill in 2024. IHCA was neutral on the bill in 2023, and we're currently neutral on this legislation today, Willett said. We're in the process of organizing our thoughts, and we just ask for the opportunity to work with the committee as this process unfolds. Chairman Representative Joel Fry, a Republican from Osceola, said, I want to thank the lobby because you and I have worked on this in various ways together. Certainly, we've had some tough conversations over the last few years on this bill, but with the goal being that we provide for Iowans safe, high-quality health care in our facilities. In taped conversations posted to the IHCA website last year, the association's lobbyists told the owners and administrators of Iowa's nursing homes that they had worked hard to kill the cameras in nursing homes bill and that they would do so again in 2024. In the opening days of the 2023 session, IHCA lobbyist Maria Bentrot told association members she and a colleague had been successful in redirecting a legislator who was backing the measure. Then in March 2023, Bentrot told IHCA members the bill was something we've opposed for many, many years. She added, I'm happy to say that yesterday we were able to kill that legislation. That is good news. That was on the House side of things. The bill never had legs in the Senate. We talked to them very early on, and we were able to get them to a point where they agreed that camera legislation was not something that they would make an issue this year. So we were confident we would be able to kill the bill, but we didn't even want it to get to a subcommittee in the House, and we were successful in preventing that from happening. So that is a big win. That is good news for us. In April 2023, Ben Trot again spoke of IHCA's efforts to fight cameras in nursing homes, telling the nursing home owners that the association was kind of locked and loaded and ready to go on this. We were able to kind of squash that very early in the session and get that off our plate. After the session ended in May 2023, Bentrot warned IHCA members the issue was likely to resurface in 2024. Best case scenario is that we kill it before it even gets any legs, she said. The recordings of the IHCA lobbyists were pulled from the organization's website shortly after the Iowa Capitol Dispatch reported their contents in December. At Tuesday's subcommittee meeting, Representative Timmy M. Brown Powers, a Democrat from Waterloo, said she has had some concerns about the impact of cameras on patient dignity and privacy, but acknowledged she didn't know whether the video from such devices was routed to residents' families or to care facility personnel. Due to ongoing staffing issues in Iowa nursing homes, she said, we need to do something. Doing nothing is not an option at this juncture, but I do have some questions to make sure we are giving the best care, the most dignity to these folks, and are keeping people safe all at the same time. Representative Brooke Bowden, a Republican from Indianola, said she, too, supports the bill and is ecstatic it has resurfaced. 
I do believe that Iowa can do this for our most vulnerable citizens, she said. She noted the cameras can protect not just residents, but also workers in nursing homes when issues arise that might unfairly implicate a caregiver. On the opinion page today, we find the Messenger editorial, entitled Eggs and Issues is Democracy in Action. Forums bring citizens, legislators together. Interaction between citizens and the officials they elect to represent them is crucial to a democracy. Citizens must be able to tell the officials what they want and what they don't want. They must also be able to hold the officials accountable for their actions. The elected officials must explain to the citizens why they take the actions they do. In Fort Dodge, there has been an event in place for at least 25 years that brings state and sometimes federal legislators together with citizens. It's called Eggs and Issues. Eggs and Issues is a forum that is held once a month while the Iowa legislature is in session. The first forum of 2024 will be held Saturday morning. The forum will begin at 8.30 a.m. in the meeting room of the Triton Cafe at Iowa Central Community College. The state senator and representatives who serve Webster County are expected to attend. During the forum, the legislators will give opening statements about issues and bills they are working on. Then they will answer the questions asked by the public. The give and take between the legislators and the citizens is democracy at work. It is something that everyone should want to be a part of. We encourage everyone to participate in their democracy by attending Eggs and Issues and submitting questions for the lawmakers. And now I look at local sports, starting with St. Edmund girls at Webster City. Gales win on the road to cap season sweep versus the Lynx. A quick start and strong finish allowed the St. Edmund girls to complete a season sweep over Webster City here on Tuesday night, 42-35. After racing out to a 22-7 halftime advantage, the Gales saw their lead get cut down to one early in the final quarter. Chloe Palmer, though, answered the Lynx rally with a three that helped spark an 8-2 run by St. Edmund, 310 overall and 2-7 in the North Central Conference. Josie Harvey added eight points in the final two minutes, including a key bucket that pushed the advantage to 35-28 late. I'm so happy for these girls, SEHS head coach C.J. Tracy said. Josie came out and played an excellent game in the fourth. All the girls who were on the floor there in the fourth really came together and finished the game strong, by stepping up. Palmer and Harvey each finished with 12 points, while Ava Underberg added 8 and Abby Huss 5. We executed in the first half on offense and defense, Tracy said. In the third, we didn't box out and gave up too many second chance points. Give Webster City credit because they kept battling. On the other side of the coin, The Webster City boys put the pressure on St. Edmund here Tuesday night from the opening tip. The Lynx turned in an eight-point halftime advantage into a convincing 62-44 win 
to secure a split with the Gales on the year. Leading the way for Webster City, 2-9 and nine overall, was Brian Claver, as the senior scored 26 points. Earlier this year, the Lynx dropped a 64-56 decision to St. Hedman, who is 6-7 on the year, in Fort Dodge. They are long in athletics and really hit the glass hard, SEHS head coach Adolf Kochendorfer said. It's a tough matchup for us with their size and getting Jack Larson back to give them even more size. You look at Webster City's scores this year, and they haven't been getting blown out. Far from it. They have some really solid ball players, and if they put together an effort like that, they are going to win a lot of games the rest of the season. And uh, now a look at Fort Dodge Senior High. In an article entitled, Dodgers Dominate Mason City 73-3, the second-ranked Fort Dodge wrestling team rolled over Mason City here Tuesday night by a final of 73-3. The Dodgers concluded their dual regular season with a record of 9-3 and and will host a Class 3A regional dual meet next Tuesday inside the Fort Dodge Senior High Gym.